So I have a, I've told you every time I get up here because I'm a f- proud dad, I have a three-year-old at home, and uh, we watch a lot of three-year-old type shows because, you know, we, watch, we let her watch TV. We're one of those families, right? Um, and on a lot of these shows, they have a word of the day or like a word of the program. And so I was like, well, we'll do that for uh, church today. So our word of the day is redemption. So look at your neighbor say Redemption. Redemption. That's our word. You're going to hold that one in mind as we talk through the text this morning um, and see where that comes out. And where I got that from today is this verse at 69. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And that's going to be kind of our working thesis, if you want to use that word. We went from children's word of the day to thesis really quick. Sorry about the abrupt shift. Um, and we're going to talk about redemption. And redemption can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, so I just want to make sure we're all on the same page before we dive in and really focus on it. In Scripture, redemption is this. It's the paying of a price or a ransom to return something to your possession. And in biblical times and in Scripture, what's most often comes to mind or what the author is referring to is the practice of purchasing a slave's freedom. Okay, so they could buy a slave and give them their freedom or rescue their family. Someone may have a family member who's in slavery, uh, and they could rescue them from that, those, um, that bo- uh, bondage and bring them out. And that's what we're thinking of today. So our big idea is rejoice in the God who redeems. Okay, there's that word redemption again. And we're going to look at the what, the who, and the how of redemption this morning through three Uh, kind of stops along the way. We're going to look at how God redeems our unbelief, the way that God redeems a people, and the way that God redeems through a person. So our first point today that we're going to look at is that God redeems our unbelief. That's the what of redemption that we see in this particular passage. And a little bit of background, um, as this story without it can be a little confusing, We see the circumcision ceremony that Elizabeth and Zechariah bring John to. And as they bring him here, they ask him, what is his name? So that sounds a little weird to us, right? Because this baby is like eight days old now, and he hasn't had a name for those eight days. But you can think of this sort of as like a uh, biblical times gender reveal, but it was like a name reveal. You know, but they didn't have like balloons full of powder or whatever uh, they do. But so they're coming to bring John to get circumcised and announce his name to their friends and family. And when they do, there's typically an understanding that the child's going to be named after a particular family member, maybe the parent or a patriarch or a matriarch, um, maybe someone who you would like them to emulate or has a particular character trait that you're hoping that your child might have. That was the custom of the time. So that's why they're kind of astonished when Elizabeth says his name will be John. Right? John doesn't seem like a real crazy name for us, and we might be taken aback, but it's something outside of the normal custom of the time. And this is in uh, verse 62. They go to ask Zechariah because they think, well, she just gave birth. If you remember, she was older when she gave birth. They might be thinking, like, she's still not thinking clearly. Why is she saying John? It must have been a mistake. Let's ask Zechariah to make sure. And this is what um, we see in Scripture. It says, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened 
and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now think back a couple weeks ago, we heard the story of Zechariah when he was a, he's a priest, and he went in to do his priestly duties in the temple, and an angel appeared. And the angel told him, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John. Okay, the angel showing up was probably enough to get his attention, but on top of that, his wife and him are uh, advanced in age and have never had a child before. They're pretty sure that ship has sailed at this point, and so you can, at least I can, understand why when Zechariah gets this message, he kind of laughs it off and like, this can't be true. But God always fulfills his promises, and we need to believe that, and because he didn't believe that, he was stricken with muteness. He was unable to speak. So he's going to go through nine plus months of being really quiet. I heard Elizabeth loved it. She was really, you know, <laughs> excited about this. Um, but for real, he's going through nine months of her pregnancy where he's unable to say anything. And he gets a front row seat to see what God is doing and how God, even though he didn't believe, is going to be true to his word anyway. You see, when we last heard of Zechariah, we heard the word of the angel saying, and his name will be John, and this unbelief from Zechariah. But our first glimpse of him again nine months later, what is the first thing that he communicates to us? When he writes it down, he's mute, so he can't even speak. He writes, his name is John. And we see that Zechariah has come full circle. He's gone from this state of unbelief to belief. And the reason this happened, I think, is twofold. And the, we're going to focus on one of these in particular, but we're going to see that God loves Zechariah too much to allow him to continue walking in his unbelief. So he brought discipline on his son, Zechariah. In Revelation, Jesus is speaking and he says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Good parents that love their children discipline their children. No offense, if your kid's showing out and running around in here, I probably won't discipline them. And I love your kids, but not the way I love my kid. My kid is acting crazy. I'm going to discipline her. When she's doing something that's going to hurt her, I'm going to discipline her in love. And that's the same way God relates to us. And then not only did he discipline him, but he gave him a front row seat to show that his promises are good and true. He showed him, this belief that I'm cultivating in you is not misplaced belief. It's a belief that's more like hope and not hope in something that might come true. It's a definite hope of something that will come true. And Zechariah gets it. Today, I think many of us, myself included, feel like Zechariah sometimes. Zechariah, by all accounts, was a righteous man. He was a good man. He, he loved the Lord. He was a priest, and he was serving him. But we see that the, the Christian life is not a destination that we get to, and then we just kind of maintain. Right? It's a steady walk of progressive obedience in Christ and to follow the commands of the Lord. And the Lord will, because he's a good father, guide you down that path, and sometimes that's going to be discipline. So my question for you today is when God disciplines you for your unbelief, do you fight against it, or you, do you seek to learn what he wants to teach you? 
And I'll give you an example of how this played out in our life. I was talking to my wife, Mindy, about this um, just a couple days ago. And she reminded me of a, a story. When we were newlyweds, we just celebrated our eighth anniversary. Um, and when we were maybe married just a few months, we had a, a life that was pretty good by our objective or subjective standard. I get those words mixed up every time. <laughs> and so we both had great jobs that we loved. My wife had just graduated college, and she was uh, working at an ad agency, which is what she went to school for, and she was pumped about this. And uh, while we're doing this, we were part of a church that was a church planting church, like City Light. And our friends were leading a new church plant outside of Nashville in Tennessee, and we were in North Carolina. That's kind of far away. And they came, and they said, Andy, Mindy, we'd love for you to pray about being a part of our church planting team. This may sound like a similar conversation that some of you may have just recently had, Maybe with me. Um, so I feel you. I've been on that side as well. And Mindy's response after they left, she didn't say this to them, so I'm wondering what your responses are after I've approached some of you. She was like, no way. There is no way I'm even praying about this. Our life is good. I just got this job that I worked for, you know, went to school for, and I've tried all these different things, and I get here. I'm tired of working at the gym or working at, uh, you know, an ice cream shop or whatever. I got this job, my career. And so she said, I'm not praying about it. And I asked her permission to share this, so she's cool with it. Um, and one day, she was going into her job at this ad agency, and she, she laughs as she tells the story now, but it, it wasn't so funny at the time. She begrudgingly prayed this prayer. She said, God, I don't even want to pray about church planning, but if I'm supposed to, if there's something in the way, just get rid of it. And she didn't know how much that prayer was going to come true, and maybe she wouldn't have prayed it at the time if she knew what was about to happen, because as she walked into work that day, not 30 minutes later, there was a different person sitting at her desk in her office. She's a little confused, and as she goes to approach him and ask him what he's doing there, her boss calls her into her office. And she lets her know, hey, this guy has 30 years' experience. He's willing to work for the same price you were, so we're hiring him. Hit the road. She lost her job. Not 30 minutes after she prayed, God, whatever might be in the way for me not to go, but even to think about going, remove it. And God lovingly, in his discipline, took the thing that she thought she needed most, and he got it out of there to show her that what she needed most was to follow him. And see, in that moment, we were caught in our unbelief. It was exposed. Our unbelief, we were not able to believe that God could possibly do something better if we sacrificed for him than what he was doing or what we had done based on our own efforts. We thought that we could better serve God or better live the life we wanted to live by our effort and our planning. And if we sacrifice for this church plant, there's no way that God could redeem that. But remember, our big idea is rejoice in the God who redeems. And redeem he did. He, he ended up fulfilling every kind of heartfelt desire at its deepest root that we were seeking in jobs and in this town that we loved, God fulfilled that in our church planning kind of story. And we had a community deeper than we could ever have. We didn't have the best jobs when we got to Tennessee, but our heart, God had worked in it in such a way that that was no longer our ultimate goal and the thing that we needed most. So I want you to think about that today. When God brings discipline into your life, it may look something like that, um, for your unbelief, how do you respond? Do you rejoice or do you fight against it? So that's the, 
what he redeems in this passage. He redeems our unbelief. Next, we're going to look at God redeems a people. That's the who of our redemption. You see, after his tongue is loosed by the Lord, Zechariah launches into this song of praise, and that's what most of this text was today, is his song of praise and prophecy that he sings before the Lord. And starting in verse 67, he says this. This is what we're going to look at for this point. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And what Zechariah is doing here is he's calling to mind the promises, those promises that are sure from the Old Testament, the ones that they're waiting on in this Advent, this first Advent season. That's why he's referring to David, right? Because one of the promises was that God would raise up a great nation under a great ruler like David, but better. And he's calling to mind that that promise. But the interesting thing is that those promises are for a particular people, right? They're not for a particular person. They are for Israel or God's people. As I read, I tried to uh, emphasize all of these plural pronouns, the us, the we, the our, because I want us to get that our salvation, our redemption, is bound up in being a part of a specific people. Our salvation is dependent on being a part of whatever this people that he's talking about is. We need to be a part of that group. And in the New Testament, in Peter, Peter tells us that this group, this nation of Israel, is, now, is no longer just the Hebrews by birth, which is good news for most of us in here. Most of us are Gentiles, as Matt likes to remind us of often, right? But the good news is in First uh, Peter 2, this is what Peter tells his audience who are Gentiles. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, we have access to this people that God is going to save. You are called to be a part of that people. When you put your faith in Christ, you are adopted into his family and into this nation. So how can you live as a part of that whole instead of being an individual? This is difficult for us as Americans especially because we don't, you know, we celebrate independence. It's a day here, right? Independence Day. We celebrate not being tied to other people. We have songs that have been around for decades about doing it our way, right? And that's so contrary to the Bible. The Bible tells us you are a part of a people. Your salvation is bound up in being part of the whole. So what might that look like for you? That's my question today. And you need to think about this on your own. I can't answer it explicitly for you. Maybe you need to sacrifice the me time that you love so much so that you can invite others into your home after you get off from work or on the weekends. Maybe it's sacrificing your money so that you maybe not you may not be able to live the life uh, of luxury that you have in mind or the standard of living that you feel you're owed because you're called to be a part of the whole. And God has called you, as we heard, I believe it was last week, 
to give generously and radical generosity. Some of you here are called to give way above your normal tithes and offerings. God's called you to that. And others of us, we need to sacrifice our social status to be a part of the whole. Being a part of this body means we are a diverse body and there are going to be people of all rungs of the socioeconomic ladder, of the social status ladder, whatever it may be. And you, as a part of this whole, are called to love everyone. Everyone in that whole. Everyone in that nation. And there may be people you're called to love who have absolutely nothing to offer you from an earthly standpoint. In fact, they maybe bring you down from the view of the world and people would wonder, what are you doing with them? Some of you are called to sacrifice that way. I see this in our church all the time, so be encouraged. This type of radical selflessness, being a part of the whole and longing to be with other believers, I see often. And one place I see this is there's, uh, I told you I work with our middle and high schoolers. We have some high schoolers who have embraced this. Okay, so I don't want to hear like, well, when I get to the next stage, once my kids grow up or once I graduate college or once I do this, we have high schoolers doing this, middle schoolers doing this. We have high schoolers that come and serve Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We have high schoolers that are seeking to be parts of city groups, which is our small group time that we have during the week, on their own because they know that they need to be a part of the people of God. We have high schoolers giving money to this church. So those of us who say we don't make enough to give or we can't sacrifice this or we're making these excuses, you have high schoolers doing it, what's your excuse? You have middle schoolers doing it, what's your excuse? We rejoice in that. And those high schoolers, they rejoice in the fact that they get to be, I hear them talking all the time, excited to hang out with 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old men and women in our church. They're excited about that. That's not normal for a high schooler, right? That's different. That's attractively different, as I have heard said a few times. And we can rejoice in that. So that's the who God redeems. He redeems a people. We've talked about he redeems our unbelief. And our third uh, stop in this scripture today is that we're going to see that God redeems through a person. It's the way God redeems. So look at verses, uh, I believe it's 76 to 79 here. Yeah, and it says, this is, uh, by the way, Zechariah is turning his attention from talking to the whole, all the people, and he's talking to John specifically. He's speaking this over his son. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Like I said, Zechariah has now been, he's been talking about this us, this we, this holy people, this holy nation, and he says, and you, John, have a very specific role to play in this. Your role is to be a gift unto God's people by telling them that the Christ is here. And his public ministry would be preparing the way for the Lord. This is how God's worked all through scripture and how he will work all through recorded time is that he uses the words of people to bring his good news. It is news, right? And news is meant to be shared and told. So just as God worked through John the Baptist to prepare the way for Christ to come into the world, he works 
through our words to prepare hearts for the Holy Spirit. God could, as we heard sung by Jesslyn, that was awesome, by the way. That was better sing. That was great. <laughs> right, we hear, he could have came in all these different ways, but he chose, he, he chose to come as a baby. And just like he could proclaim himself, and he could write it in the clouds if he wanted to, he chooses to use the words of men and women. Think about how you ended up here today. If you're a follower of Christ, how did that happen? Be willing to bet that almost 100% of us in here, it was because someone opened their mouth and shared the, the gospel news with us. Someone prepared our hearts to hear it, or they invited us to church, or they asked us hard questions that made us think about uh, our lives and spiritual matters. So my challenge to you today is to make yourself a tool that God can use to redeem others. You're not the redeemer. You're a spotlight that shines on the redeemer. And at City Light, we have a, a little bit of a four-step paradigm that we use um, when we talk about how do we do this, and we say pray, love, introduce, speak. If you've been around for a little bit, you've heard that before. And what we mean is pray for non-Christian friends, your friends who don't follow Christ, your family, pray for them regularly, by name. We suggest you have three people that you're constantly praying for. Next, we love. We love that friend or that family member genuinely, not as a project. We care about them, and then we give, find tangible ways to love them. Maybe you mow the grass for your elderly neighbor, or you take the trash cans out, or you watch their kids, or you just send them a text to let them know you're thinking about them. I don't know what it is. Be creative. So we pray, we love, then we introduce. The Bible tells us that one of the ways we, they, the world will know that we're Christians is because, our, as I said earlier, our community is attractively different. they got to be around that community to see it. So invite your non-Christian friends to hang out with your Christian friends. To get rid of that wall that so many of us like to put in our life and keep our different realms of our life separate. Bring them together. Invite them to your kid's birthday party. Watch the Eagles game with others. Find creative ways to do this as well, but here's the, the thing. Praying, loving, and introducing them is great and is important, and you should do that, but I've never heard a story where someone says, you know, I'm so glad that Jesus Christ came to earth lived the life I was supposed to live, died the death that I was supposed to die, raised again in three days so that I could have eternal life with him in heaven because you invited them to your kid's birthday party or because you took their trash out. Those are all ways to prepare their heart to hear the good news of the gospel. We need to speak it. We need to tell it to our friends. We need to ask them hard questions, invite them to church. A real practical way you can do this is invite them to Christmas Eve service. People are open and willing to enjoy the sort of cultural Christianity that exists in our nation, and they're willing to come to Christmas Eve services. Invite someone to come with you, and they will be able to hear the good news. So, in conclusion, as we look at this, I want to kind of check out John here just a, a little bit closer, because I said God redeems through a person. And we've looked at how God uses us to redeem people or uses us as a tool in his hands, but none of us, John included, are the redeemer. So we're not ultimately the person that God redeems through. That person is Jesus Christ, who we've been singing about this morning and talking about, and everything is pointing to. Jesus Christ, God the Son, left heaven and came to earth as a person, as a man, fully man, fully God. 
and he lived the life that you and I are called to live. He died the death that you and I are supposed to die. We, where we didn't believe, where we had unbelief in our hearts, he believed fully and trusted God, that his Father, that his will be done and not his. Sorry, I was confusing. That God the Father's will would be done, and he wouldn't uh, cave on his responsibility to die on the cross. And he redeemed us and bought us back at great personal cost to himself so that we could worship him forever. And we can be brought in to that family. He didn't purchase us to nothing. He purchased us into his family. He adopted us. And we can say this with Zechariah. It says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Zechariah is thinking of probably of his people and their political enemies, their national enemies. He's thinking of other people. And God certainly does protect us and guard us and uh, watch out for us. But while Zechariah meant that, God meant something even deeper. Something that Zechariah could only have a little taste of, a shadow of, that we get to see in full today on this side of Christ's sacrificial death. And that is that our greatest enemy has been defeated. The enemy of sin and death because of his redemption. Because Jesus Christ died in our place to purchase us, we have as followers of Christ the Holy Spirit living in us as a part of that people, and even giving us the faith to understand and to believe. If you're not a follower of Christ this morning, I would encourage you to seek God in these next couple minutes. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to sing songs about God redeeming us and coming to earth as a person. And I encourage you to seek him. Ask him for the faith to believe. If you are a believer, I would pray that you would use this time to pray for those around you, but also to make sure that you are examining the parts of your heart that God is trying to get back. He's trying to redeem. Those places of unbelief that you've held on to that you don't want to hand over. Pray about that. We have prayer in the back that you can go to and people will pray that with you, whether you want to pray for the first time to trust Christ and believe him or you have just this peace that you need to give over to him. And if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to the communion tables in the front and the back where we commemorate that great cost that Jesus paid for us, where we celebrate and rejoice that one day we're going to have a better meal with him in heaven. And as we eat that bread, we remember his body broken for us. We dip it in the cup, we remember his blood shed for us. That's the price that was paid for you. And finally, we're going to sing. We're going to sing songs to our Savior, our Redeemer. That's rejoicing. The world knows this. When they have something that they're excited about, they sing a song, right? How many love songs are out there? We have such a greater joy to rejoice in this morning. Also, if you're a follower of Christ and a member of this church, ask God to show you from his word, maybe he has something that he would like to tell his people for the building up of the body from scripture this morning. And if that's, that's what we call prophecy here. And if you think God may be putting something on your heart, come up and talk to me and we'll weigh it with scripture and see if that may be for the, the building up of God's people. So think about where do you fall into those categories? Do you need to talk to God this morning about your unbelief? Do you need to rejoice that God's redeemed you? Do you need to lean into the sufferings that he's delivered as, as uh, discipline? Do you need to think about how you can be a part of a people? I'm not sure where you are, but God is, and, and you can ask him and he'll reveal that to you. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you 
that you redeem us. Thank you that while we don't believe, your promises are still true. And that you love us so much that you're unwilling to let us stay in that unbelief. And you love us so much to, to allow us to continue in our sin and with our enemies standing over our heads. And that you've bought us back. You've rescued us from the bondage. And you've won us to yourself. We pray this morning that those of us who, need, who are hearing this for the first time or understanding it for the first time would freely give our lives to you. And those of us who have heard this thousands of times and have believed it and have trusted you, that you would show us the parts of our life where we're still holding back. We just thank you for who you, who you are and for sending your son 2,000 years ago to be the price paid for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.